Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name's Neil Headley. I was prepared to take a lifelong battle with insomnia and just chalk it up to having spent 40 years on morning television and radio and that just being part of the job with a 3 a.m. alarm. Well, I dug a little bit deeper and found out I had a heck of a lot more to learn. So what we're gonna do in this series is we're gonna fix your sleep by trying to figure out why mine is so horribly broken and then maybe we stumble upon some answers together. We talk to scientists and sleep researchers and high achievers who have sleep challenges built into their day-to-day -day experience, maybe a high-pressure day where they had to figure out how to fall asleep the night before. I learn how they did it. I try whatever it is that worked for them for a couple of weeks, and we see if it works for me. So we'll have some fun learning what things work and what things don't, and I can maybe save you some headaches down the road. I'm excited to have back on the show to kick off season three. He's here for the second time. And people absolutely loved when he was on the first time around. He is the author of, among other things, The Sleep Solution, and now the reason that he's here on this week's show uh, for a brand new book called The Rested Child. Dr. Chris Winter is here. How are you, man? Good to see you. I'm, I'm great, Neil. I, I'm honored to be back. Usually, I, I don't get second invitations often. <laughs> I know how that feels. To I really anything. know how that feels. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so, look, I feel like we got a lot to cover, um, but let's start with the rested child because one of the things that, as you and I are sitting down to have this conversation, we're getting ready for school to go back. We're we're hearing a lot of conversations about, you know, whether or not our kids are going to be masked up when they go back to school, and all these things that by the time people get around to watching this episode will have already been resolved, I assume. But one of the things that is going to linger on is the question of all of the COVID stuff and everything that's been going on for the last couple of years now on our kids' mental health. And I have a very strong suspicion that having a good sleep regimen can go a long way toward helping to resolve some of that stuff. Am I close? Oh, I think you're you're right on the money. And, and you know, the release of this book sort of coinciding with a lot of children going back into a brick and mortar school and being on that schedule for the first time in almost two years is you know, just a coincidence. I mean, that was not sort of part of the plan when I sat down to write this book, but man, you could not have encapsulated the problems that these children are going back to any better. Um, I mean, it really is this idea that, you know, we're sort of all emerging from this horrible pandemic and, and there's a lot of optimism and positive feeling. Um, but for a lot of kids, they're going back to a situation that's incredibly difficult, getting up early, being on that schedule, um, and, and hopefully this book can really help, you know, parents and educators and doctors kind of figure out a way forward during this difficult time. What's your take on if I was going to, uh, you know, do the equivalent of skipping ahead and reading the last page of the book? What is the thing that parents, I'm going to word this delicately, get wrong the most often as far as their kids sleep is concerned? I'm not sure parents get things wrong. They never showed up to take the test. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yep. one thing to show up and take the test and just not know how to work the problem. It's another thing completely to not be aware that you were supposed to show up for the test 
and then get a zero on it. And, and, and I think that that's kind of where we might be when it comes to parents and sleep, that we focus so much attention on what to do with this little baby in a onesie that snaps in the crotch. You don't really understand the diaper and the breastfeeding thing is a big mystery. And you're just terrified about trying to get it to sleep through the night so you can go forward and enjoy continuing to and continue to enjoy your own life. And I think once parents get past that hurdle, it's sort of like, well, that kid's good until menopause, like in terms of sleep. And I, I think nothing could be further from the truth. It's just right. that we don't know what what we're looking for when it comes to how sleep disturbances manifest in children, you know, from that time they're born until they head off to college or, or hit those college years. And I, And really, this book was meant to be an exploration of before you diagnose your kid with depression, ADHD, a learning disability, anxiety, you know, whatever, consider a sleep problem, especially if there are sleep manifestations in terms of what's going on, and prepare yourself to be an advocate for your child in terms of fighting to get that diagnosis made with the school or a, a physician that you're dealing with because they may not know a lot more than you do. Where do you come down on sleep crutches as it relates to kids? Because I remember a conversation that we had on this show with Dr. Linnell Schneeberg um, from Connecticut Children's Medical Center. She's an associate professor at Yale. Um, and, and we had this conversation about, you know, some, I, I don't want to say mistakes that I was making with what at the time was my one and a half year old. She's now three. She just turned three. Um, you know, that one extra teddy bear, that one extra story, that one extra sip of water that then all of a sudden become these things that they can't get to sleep without, right? Yep. And it's not just little kids. It can be older kids as well, too. I mean, I just kind of had a discussion with one of my children about, Dad, I need my phone to listen to an episode of Friends so I can fall asleep. Well, no, you don't. And, right. and, and so I, I think it really starts with education early on with your kids about you're a human. Uh, I'm fairly certain. And if you're a human, you're going to sleep. There's not a lot you can you can do about that. And that really touches on the idea of the establishment of a sleep identity, which we all do, and, and we all have all kinds of identities, the athletic identity, the academic identity, and sleep identity is one of them. And so it's very important for individuals to sort of differentiate a crutch versus maybe an enhancement. Oh, I can sleep without the noise machine. I just like it. But if you took it away from me, it's not that big of a deal. That, that's sort of the mentality we want people to be in and not, what was it somebody just told me? I just had a patient say to me something on the order of, I can't sleep, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on what it was, but, but I, I said to her, and she, this is a 38-year-old woman, do you really think that if I took that thing away from you, um, oh, it was a it was a nightlight that was turned red and blue at different times. Whatever. I said, do you really think sure. if I took that away from you, you would just, go, you know, sort of wander the earth for the rest of your existence, unable to sleep? And she laughed and said, no. I said, well, why do you use that language? So that's where we want to be as parents, that we want to create a comfortable bedroom that's dark. If they want a glass of water, knock it, knock yourself out, you know, uh, nightlight 
okay, you know, whatever. But we want to be very careful that we are always giving the message to our children, to our teens, to whatever age, that your sleep transcends all of these things. And that none of these things are necessary for sleep. Um, and, and if you're kind of reinforcing that message, you're creating an optimism and a confidence that will absolutely pay itself forward as you get older. Uh, those crutches can really backfire as you get a little older. Because uh, at some yeah. point, the blanket has to go away. The, you know, I lie down with my children every night to help them sleep. Oh, really? <laughs> You, you feel good about that decision that you've made now that every night right. you sit there for an hour while your kid falls asleep. You know, I think yeah. at some point we all pay the piper. So it's just really about being cognizant of these things and setting a tone early for a child that really inspires confidence while the parent is looking out for little red flags. Yeah, the I lay down with my kids to help them sleep every night thing works until they start calling you from their dorm room. You know, that's, that's right. It's a whole different <laughs> that's conversation. Right. That's right. Yeah, I'm almost done with my calculus homework. Can you come by afterward and lie down with me for an hour? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so. for us, you know, our three-year-old still has the little white noise machine. You've probably seen, you probably even know the one yeah. I'm talking about. It looks like an owl. You know, and it has a light in it and it can make a bunch of difference. It can play music if you want. It can be white. And we're at a point now where, I mean, she can sleep without it, but we use it now as a noise buffer because if yeah. the thing is in there and it's making noise, then whatever noises are happening outside of her room are less likely to wake her up because it's in there kind of interfering. You and, know? and I think that's a very appropriate use of a noise machine to sort of condition her room. So that you and your wife don't have to tiptoe around and whatnot, you all can drop a plate in the dishwasher and, and not have a problem. And, and and it's always that kind of thing where, you know, every now and then, you know, that it's it's not working or you take a little trip and you don't take it with you. Just always reinforcing that idea that, oh, you're okay without it. We're just gonna do this so our noise that we're making doesn't disturb you. But even if you didn't have it, it would be okay. Like that's always that kind of mentality you want to kind of create with that. For sure. I know you're a person who uh, isn't uh, shy about expressing an opinion. So let me refer you to an earlier episode of this show where we had Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt uh, on as guests because I wanted to talk to them about the episode of Mad About You that everybody remembers. It was the episode (laughs) where Paul and Jamie Buckman agonize over sleep training their kid. And what if you if you're listening or watching this and you haven't heard that episode before, you got to go hear it because as it turns out, it was her. It was Helen Hunt's favorite episode of the entire series that they did. Uh, it was Paul Reiser's favorite episode of the whole series for a whole bunch of different reasons. Part of it, they did the entire show in one take, one camera shot, um, no stops, oh, no wow. edits, no breaks, no nothing. Her father directed it, which is one of the reasons that she loves it as well so much. Um, but all of these different things. And one of the other things that they both loved about that episode was that it is a universal for every parent. Every parent has had that moment where it's, and there's no middle ground either. When you ask parents, they are firmly in one camp or the other. It's either let your kid cry it out or it's a, you're a terrible parent if you let your kid cry it out. Is there a right or a wrong? Or is it like so many other sleep related things where there's not one correct answer? You know, I found when I wrote this book, there were times where I felt I was crossing over from 
a sleep specialist, somebody who studied sleep for decades into sort of a parent. And I think this is one of those places where you can get into that. Listen, I, I think that if you had a child that every time you checked out of the grocery store, grabbed a whole bunch of candy off the shelf, that's cleverly set at their level where all the candies down there at, you know, if you're three feet or less in height, all the Reese's cups and gum is all lined up there. Like some sort, you know, if your kid grabbed a whole bunch of it and threw it in the cart, my guess is the average parent would say, oh, no, no, honey, we're not buying all this candy and put it back. Right. So what happens if your child breaks down and starts crying? Do you say, oh, well, if you're going to cry about it, then we buy all the candy. And and in, and in that way, if you're going to cry about the toy, we'll buy the toy. If you're going to cry about wearing your seatbelt, you can just roam around freely in the back of the SUV because I don't want to damage you sure. in our relationship growing up. I don't think any parent would think that, well, I would never do that. So I'm not really sure what's wrong with trying to facilitate a child as they are in the conversation, which is a glorious episode of Mad About You. I just flew back from California, saw Paul Reiser in Whiplash for the first time. I'd never seen that movie and was actually thinking about that episode because it's so great that this couple is not exactly sure what they're doing. She's really into it, really thinks that we have to teach this child how to comfort herself. He's not so sure, but you can see that it's done with love. Um, they've got these little intervals. We're going to go 30 seconds. My favorite quotation from that episode is when Paul Reiser says, when they're sitting there and she's crying, he says, you know, it goes a lot faster if we talk. So they have a little conversation. He goes in for a minute and soothes her yep. and comes back out. You know, it's a frustrating process to some extent for a parent, but I think it's kind of a necessary one. And I think the way we villainize cry it out doesn't have to be so. Every parent knows the difference between the sort of cry, 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 and the hyperventilation, screaming, purple-in-the-face kind of situation. I don't think anybody needs to let their kid get to that level. But walking out of a room, letting a child try to soothe themselves, and you coming in at some sort of designated period to let the child know, look, we're not in the room with you, but we're always going to be here if you need it. You know, that's important. And the most important thing with the whole process is even if it goes sideways and the whole night's a complete disaster, which it rarely is, then you keep with the schedule the next morning yep. and you, you come in with a smile and the child has the own its own natural consequence of, oh, I gave you the time to sleep and now it's 7 a.m. or whatever wake up time you've decided. We're moving forward with our day and now your job becomes prevent the child from falling asleep in the car, in the grocery store, in the jog stroller, uh, and and they'll get they'll get the, the the message very quickly. But I, you know, the idea that we can't intervene in that does not make a lot of sense to me. Oh, so many more roads I want to go down with you on this thing. Um, so let's here, let me give you this one first. Let me see. And again, I'm fascinated with just your your opinion on some things that have become part of you know, the, the parental sleep lexicon snoo. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's lore, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really its own sort of mythology and, and yeah, I love it. Go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. All right. What's it? Where, where are you on the snoo? The, I'm sorry. The snoo. Have you seen this thing? It's a, they call it a smart sleeper. It's S N O O. Um, so what it has is it has, it's a, it's a bassinet looking thing and it has motion detectors and microphones all over it. 
And the idea is, and it has five different levels of action. Okay. So if your kid is, if you just put them in and it comes with like a, a swaddle, a Velcro swaddle. So the kid is swaddled and they're held in place in this bassinet with a couple of clips so that they don't roll around and do all the, all the things. Um, and there's five different levels. Level one is it's just playing white noise. Level two is if the kid is stirring a little bit, moving around, whimpering, whatever, it starts to very gently rock a little bit and the white noise gets a little bit louder. Um, if the kid after about a minute or two of that hasn't calmed down and maybe it's escalated a little bit, then it bumps it up to level three where the white noise gets a little louder and the rocking gets a little bit more intense. And it goes all the way up to level five where if the kid is full on crying now, it's rocking them back and forth and the white noise is louder. And if it, if the child doesn't stop crying within about two minutes, then it sends an alert to your phone and it's like, okay, I've done all I can to try and rock the kid back to sleep. Now it's on you. Come collect your baby. Um, there are people that swear by the thing. There are people that say it's, uh, you know, the devil's handiwork. <laughs> you know, when you hear about something like that, where it's an automated device that will rock your kid back to sleep for you. Because there are some people who swear on this machine taught my kid how to sleep and how to self-soothe without me having to continually run into the room and do the rocking for them. The machine took care of it and and then they were fine on their own relatively quickly. What do you think? I think that there has never been nor will there ever be a machine that teaches a kid to sleep or eat or breathe or consume liquids and solid foods. I, to me, I, I think that... Don't this, hold back, Chris. Tell me what you actually think. Listen, I have no problem with it. I mean, it doesn't sound dangerous. It just, you know, to me, it reminds me of an MCAT prep course. It's sort of like the four years of college are not enough. Do you think it's really worth risking you taking the MCAT because you really want to go to medical school, you might want to take our $3,700 prep course. <laughs> it's that fear-based mentality of, I would never even dawn on me to buy that for a, a child because they can sleep. They may need a little help here or there. Um, so to, what are you doing it for? And then for the person who swears by it, what do you really think would have happened had it not been in their life? Mm -hmm. My guess is they still would have grown up and hated math. Do you know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> it's kind of like kids who read early. Well, that's awesome. You look kindergarten reading Harry Potter. But when you get to seventh grade, everybody's reading and nobody really cares who read first. Like I, you know, I, I don't like to speak negatively of things, but if you're out there thinking, you know, should I, do I need this thing? Do I need to invest in the snoo? Or I've got a neighbor who'll sell it to me for 50% off because she used it for her kid. I mean, if you want to, but don't feel like you need to do something like that. It seems like you're making a process that's relatively, you know, set in terms of 
evolution in history and making it pretty complicated. Uh, Although I'd really like to write an article about levels six, seven, and eight that are secret, but with a special code you can activate. Uh, And I'll tell you about those uh, on a special episode of the the snooze. Snooze button after hours like it's just right. for you know it's a, it's a more intense version of your show where yeah. the secret it's like the the secret menu at in out burger it's the <laughs> secret menu on the snoo that not every parent knows about but with special keys you can unlock i like it i think there probably is a six seven and eight i i that's i never even thought of that that's Actually, that's kind of dark. Level 11 um, is I get the call. Level 11 is the call doesn't go to the parents. It comes to me. Can you so get over about there? About three or four times a night, I get, I get a level 11 call from Snoo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I just put, put me through to the child. Right, exactly. Catch me through. Go ahead. Um, okay, bedtime. Because actually, truth be told, I had this conversation with somebody via text message earlier today. Um, because they were asking, what time does your kid go to sleep? Now, she just turned three. She's starting school in five weeks. Um, Over the summer, she's been kind of allowed to do whatever the heck she wanted. Um, And my kid has been a championship sleeper right out of the gate. Like, you know, she's always been a great sleeper. You know, her naps work like clockwork, all those sorts of things. Um, Over the summer, though, you know, she was doing sleepovers at friends' houses, don't worry, everyone was either vaccinated or socially distanced. It's fine. Um, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff was going on. And so some nights bed would be at 8.30. Some nights bed would be at 10.30. Um, but now, you know, because maybe there was a good Disney movie on and mommy looked and was like, come on, she's enjoying Frozen. We're not going to put her down at, just in the middle of the movie. <laughs> right. um, um, so... It, do are you a, a belief because we know we talk about with adults everybody needs their seven to nine hours even though there are some people this tiny little microscopic minority of the population that's wired to get less than that and be just fine um is there is bedtime important for kids and is it more important the younger they get is there flexibility there how does bedtime work yeah, I mean, I think bedtime is really important, and I think we're going to see that as we go from as, – as the post-pandemic phase begins with kids going back to school, um, you know, looking at my kids who are slightly older, it was a huge change during this time from let's get up and go swimming at 5 in the morning to – you kind of log into your Zoom class at 930, but you can turn the camera off and mute it and you can sit there in your bed and sleep a little bit longer weekends. I mean, there's no such thing as the weekday weekend. It's all just been kind of this blur over the last couple of years. Sure. So I think bedtimes are important, but I do think that we tend to over focus on the bedtime and under focus on the wake time. And so what I mean by that is there are situations where we are putting a tremendous amount of pressure on a child. You know, okay, it is now seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever your bedtime is, you need to get in bed. You need to get some sleep now. And if you don't, you're going to get sick. You're not going to swim well in your swim meet. Uh, You're going to do terribly on your math test because, you know, mommy saw something about the fact that if you get good sleep, you do better in school, which is all probably true. Um, But so now, the kid is feeling this sort of pressure about bedtime. And then on the other end, we often are kind of loose about wake times, especially if kids are struggling. Well, my kid, I heard him up in his bedroom for two hours last night. 
So I just let him sleep an extra couple hours. And I'll just take him to school late because he has study all first period and gym second period. I'm not sure you're doing your kid any favors there. Sure. So I, I'm not against making things a little bit more lax during the summer. But I think as you start to move towards the school year, what you really want to do is start to move the wake up time closer to whatever time your child is going to have to be awake for school and then really try to take the pressure off the bedtime. And when my kids were little, I, I, I essentially told them, you can go to bed whenever you want to. Now, you need to be in your room at this certain time. I don't want you coming out unless you see somebody you don't recognize or smell smoke. So don't mess with your brother and sister. Don't mess with mommy and daddy. But in terms of if you want to read a book, you want to draw a picture, play with your dolls or your matchbox cars, look at some baseball cars, you do all that stuff. I, I don't really care as long as it doesn't involve a screen. <laughs> right. And you decide when you want to climb into your bed and turn the light out. We're, we're going to be hands off about it. What I don't tell my kids when I give that little conversation when they're little is I'm going to wake you up at the same time every day. I'm going to do it with a smile. There's nothing punitive or punishment feeling about it. Hey, it's eight o'clock. Time to get up. Oh, I didn't sleep really well. That's that's too bad, but it's no big deal. Sometimes that happens. Let's talk about it over breakfast. So that's where you want to put your emphasis, because once you do that, the bedtime will take care of itself. Um, that's that's usually not an issue, really, if, if you really structure things the right way. So bedtimes are important. But I always tell people that bedtime is not when you go to bed. It's kind of the earliest you're allowed to try. That, right. That's maybe a better definition of a bedtime. So if, you're, if your daughter is like, oh, I'm so wound up about this thing, I can't sleep, then give her a good activity to do in bed. Oh, why don't you look over your spelling words? Or she's three, probably not doing that quite yet, but maybe. Um, why don't you look at this book? Why don't you draw mommy a picture about your favorite thing that happened today? So they feel like it's okay to not fall asleep at this arbitrary time every night. And by doing that, you will cost me a patient visit three decades from now from a young woman who came from Canada who said, you know, I've been a bad sleeper ever since I was three years old. Right. Yeah, because my parents gave me orthosomnia. That's right. Um, and, and the sad thing is the parents are doing it out of care for the child. Yeah. I don't want you to do poorly. I want you to get your rest. And these are all good things to have. But we just want to do it in a little bit of a way that doesn't put that kind of Olympic performance pressure on a kid. Okay. Speaking of performance pressure and all those things, um, you know, we've we've talked about the rested child, the new book, and and this idea that there are so many things that are misdiagnosed. Which, if you really track it down, a lot of those things can be rectified by fixing a kid's sleep. And I love the whole premise of that. And and like I can't I can't recommend strongly enough that people need to pick this book up. However. One of the other conversations that's happening, and this is the last time I will invite you to dip your toe into um, into uh, controversial water in this conversation, but it is something of a controversy for some reason in places. Three words, school start times. Yeah, and, and I devoted a, kind of a whole chapter to that. And uh, so one of the, I always hate saying this, and I don't know a better way to say it, so maybe one of your, your viewers can tweet me, but one of the non-negative things that have come out of COVID has been the idea that school start time. So the, the, to sum that up, basically, the hypothesis is let kids 
go to school later, they will sleep longer, and you will align the average child's sleep more in, in keeping with their chronotype. or their, their, Most kids are, tend to be a little bit more night-oriented. So by letting them sleep in, they'll sleep longer, and you'll kind of synchronize them to their chronotype a little bit better. So that's the, that's the hypothesis. The counter-argument is, no, they won't. If you delay their wake-up time and delay the school start time, they'll just stay up later. And then there's a lot of sort of ancillary arguments. Well, what about school busing? What about sports after school? Mom and dad have to get to work when we used to go to work. Um, <laughs> and now they've got to wait around because the bus isn't coming until some later time. And that's going to throw off childcare. So and I get all that. And, and there's some validity to those things. But the main point has always been let them sleep in. They'll just stay up later. So one of the interesting things about COVID is studies are coming out bigger population studies versus these, you know, small town in China studies, uh, which there are a couple um, that have basically said, no, no, no. When you delay start times, allow schools to start later as they have in this virtual world, kids absolutely utilize that time to sleep and they have better psychological outcomes and they perform better on tests. So, We've kind of accidentally done this big experiment that I think, as time passes, is going to end this counter argument of school start times being uh, it's unnecessary to do this. So, you know, and when you look at your own kids, if you look at when the average kid your daughter's age or my kid's age academically peak, it's like three to four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And that's after my kid's school ends. So this idea that they'll just stay up later, I mean, I've seen it in my own kids. They don't stay up later. They actually utilize the time to get more sleep. Um, we've got the Olympics going on right now. My son, he's not even in school. He just went to bed. Um, and, 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 and he's definitely slept more and grew more. And this is my other little thought that I'll throw out there, um, that when we look back in five years or so at this time, we're going to see that children – had these unusual surges in their physical growth because of that extra sleep and because of the way that sleep relates to growth hormone and deep sleep. And, and, and I, I think that there's pediatricians everywhere will look at those little growth charts and say, wow, growth tended to surge during this time because, yeah, kids were sleeping more. Um, interesting that you mentioned the Olympics. And yeah, if you're watching this, Chris and I are having this conversation um, in, in the middle of the Olympic Games. Um, and, and actually, it's, I think, about 12 hours now since Simone Biles pulled out of the team section of the gymnastics competition. And I'm going to get you to put your I work with a lot of high performance athletes hat on for a second, because in the press conference this morning, one of the things that really caught my attention and it may have jumped out for you the way it did for me was she knew something was really wrong when she couldn't nap. And I went, whoa. And so to her, one of the deciding factors of pulling out of the Olympics was her ability to nap and how she thought that was going to throw her off. What do you think of that? First of all, I think Simone Biles is a phenomenon. Um, I think she is a tremendous athlete. And this one competition to me is is meaningless. Now, I'm saying that as a 48-year-old man who looks at all kinds of things and 
you know, it's, it's hard to gain perspective of these things. So I just give her my ultimate support and, and fanboy uh, wishes. You know, as somebody who's worked with a lot of high performance athletes, um, and I will admit, I've not worked with as many women as men. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, um, even though I like working with women better because they do what I tell them to do a lot more than the men do. <laughs> They're much more open and easy to work with. It's often a money situation. Sure. The WNBA has a certain amount of money the NBA does that they don't have to worry about. So putting that aside, when I've had the, the opportunity um, and the privilege to work with female athletes, um, you know, I, I find them to be remarkably open about the things that they deal with. And professional athletes have routines. Their lives are built on routines. Even a lot of the, you know, I don't want to have a COVID vaccine, even though after the event, after the Olympics, I will get one. And I know that it's putting my ability to compete in jeopardy. They're so routine driven that it all, it, it often really makes sense. They don't want anything to disrupt the way, and if you look at a baseball player, they come in, they get their treatments, they go to the cage, they nap. They, you know, it's really important. So for somebody to not be able to nap probably indicates a lot of things going on in their head, not to mention the fact that we've got to remember that Simone Biles lives and works out in the United States and now has traveled halfway around the world. Her body understands that probably more than she does. So the idea when she's going to do her routine and take a nap her body's saying, well, wait a minute, this isn't our nap time. This is the time we should be soundly asleep. That adjustments, those adjustments are tremendously difficult. I'm surprised what she's going through doesn't happen more. And the last thing that I would want to be doing, hurling myself through a potentially spine crushing activity is to not feel like you are 100% on. I think it's really courageous of her to say, you know what? I'm just going to step aside. It's it's not worth it to me to get injured. Screw up the chances for our team to get a medal. So to me, these things, I'm surprised they don't happen more. And I remember Olympics several years ago where there was a woman competing. I don't remember her name, but she was supposed to be the female Michael Phelps. And I remember in her first two events, she didn't do that well. And NBC completely switched their coverage and kind of stopped talking about her because she was just kind of not living up to the expectation. And I remember thinking, I think that was in Beijing. And I just remember thinking, man, if you didn't make some big adjustments to your training schedule and your sleep and your napping and your food timing and your social interaction and light and temperature exposure – then you could really struggle in these events to take you halfway around the world. So it's easy for me to sit here in this chair in Charlottesville, Virginia, and say, don't worry about it, Simone. But don't worry about it, Simone. You, know, you, you did the right thing. And nobody gets to question you but you. Yeah, and one of the, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, and you and I have talked uh, off the air, let's call it, about baseball a couple of times. And um, one of the other things I heard someone talk about, you know, you talk about f flying through the air, doing all of the things that she does. If you're not 100% on all the things that can go wrong. I saw somebody else post a line on uh, on Twitter today where they said, you know, what if you're a Major League Baseball pitcher and you're not 100% focused on this pitch? Well, your 102 mile an hour fastball could kill a guy. 
So it's important yeah, to be zeroed in. I'm surprised that more bad pitches don't happen. I mean, I really am. That I think it's incredible the amount of control they have over a situation that seems somewhat uncontrollable. And the other thing about sports like baseball or basketball, think about a basketball player is totally off. He can still defend. He can still create assists. I remember one time when I worked with the Thunder, Kevin Durant was just having a terrible game. But he still like had one of the best defensive games. There's other things that you can do. When you're vaulting, you can't defend somebody else's vault. Like run out there and block a Russian as she's getting ready to run down and do her vault. Yeah. Like there's nothing you can do. It's like a totally offensive situation. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, those sports are very difficult to sort of, you know, the, a swimmer when they're off. It's like my, my wife just watched a swimming event. And she said, oh, he only lost by this amount. I'm like, that's a huge amount in swimming. Yeah. And, and he was never in danger of drowning. I don't think anybody ever gets so in their head in swimming that you're like, I don't feel my sa- I don't feel like I'm safe in the water. You know, so no. gymnastics is its own beast. Yeah, you're flying around in the air and and somersaulting three times and coming down on that balance beam. You miss, yeah. you could oh, die. God. I mean, I don't <laughs> I do not understand how they do it oh. in the best of situations. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal to me that they're as safe as they are when they do it and i think that's a veteran knowing where she's at and just saying you know what today i'm not feeling it and and that's okay yeah um you know a great conversation we had the first time that you were on the show and i would encourage people to go back to that episode as well because uh we had it at a time where we talked a lot about uh, how important sleep was becoming, especially to, you know, for example, the National Football League and a lot of elite athletes talking about how important sleep is. And now we're talking about partly that in relation to the Olympics, but also, listen, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about the new book because um, uh, chances are you have a, 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 you know, there's a much larger uh, base of people who can be impacted by a good night's sleep out there in the parent world than there are in the high performance professional athlete world. So I'm, I'm glad you tackled the subject um, because this is the kind of information that people need. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for having some time to talk about it today. Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah, it's like we say in the athletic world, get them sleeping well when they're young, the amateur athlete, the collegiate high school athlete. And I think the same thing applies to this book, you know, learn the fundamentals of sleep, help your children develop it. And then they'll have no reason whatsoever to buy my other book as they get older, (laughs) which would be a great thing. I would love to make book number one, Obsolete. We don't need. We don't need that anymore. We've we've progressed. But remember back when we had adults who couldn't sleep. Like that would be a wonderful thing to to, to inoculate the world against. Dr. Chris Winter on the snooze button. Thank you for helping to kick off season number three. We're back next week with another. Uh, I, I get to geek out a little bit on next week's show with someone that I'm uh, as equally as large of a fan as I am of Chris Winter. So we'll see you back here next week for the snooze button podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on the socials, the handle everywhere we are, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, although our Instagram Instagram game is really, really weak, but it's uh, get your snooze on on every single channel where you can find us. Until next week, this has been the Snooze Button. My name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? <laughs>